Welcome to EHS on Tap. I'm your host, Jay Kumar, editor of EHS Daily Advisor. This week, I talked to David Seltzer, Territory Manager for Pennsylvania for the American Red Cross, about how the Red Cross has refocused its safety training initiatives. And now, on to the interview. All right, I am joined today by David Seltzer, Territory Manager for Pennsylvania for the American Red Cross. Welcome, Dave. Hi, Jay. Good to be with you. Good to have you here. Um, before we kind of dig into the subject matter, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about yourself and what you do for Red Cross. Sure. Um, I work with clients that try to get safety programs up and running. Um, these are organizations that have their own instructors and they also have a need at times to have the Red Cross come out on site with our instructors and do, do certified training with them. Um, and so I manage a team that's working with these clients to help meet their training needs. And I've been with the organization for just over 17 years. Nice. So obviously safety training is extremely important for every business and uh, everywhere, but I was wondering if you could kind of explain, you know, just why it's so important. Well, the main thing is, you know, injuries happen every year in the United States, whether you're at home, um, workplace, um, and there's, you know, there's only minutes that you have to respond to those emergencies, whether it's, um, you know, workplace injury, which goes, uh, relates to life-threatening bleeding. Um, it could be cardiac arrest, could be a stroke, could be anaphylactic shock. So um, what we do with training is we give uh, organizations, their employees, the opportunity to respond when um, interaction can save somebody's life. Um, you only have a certain amount of time to respond to different emergencies. With cardiac arrest, you have about 10 minutes. And then, um, you know, at that point, it's really, you're, you're fighting an uphill battle to save somebody's life. The same thing with life-threatening bleeding. You only have, um, you know, around two to five minutes if there's severe bleeding incident to really respond and save somebody's life. So what we're doing is we're giving employees the chance to interact and take action to save people's lives, and we're also helping organizations meet OSHA requirements, regulatory requirements. Um, when you go to different companies to kind of you know do this training, is it uh, do you have to like almost identify or have the company identify people who are willing to provide you know this kind of you know life saving uh, these life saving techniques in a moment of you know a moment that matters, like you mentioned. Yeah, it's a really good question, right? So when, when you're talking with organizations, um, they have different cultures. Sometimes right. they will have individuals that are just purely voluntary. And then sometimes they'll have individuals who have like a background. They may have an EMT or paramedic background, so they would be a natural fit for it. Um, and then sometimes they're trying to get individuals, you know, trying to get enough individuals where they can respond in a period of time when they can make a difference. And that's where the training really becomes important because you don't know when somebody collapses how a responder is going to react. Everybody right. reacts differently. So being able to have thorough training with really strong muscle memory, um, we're able to bridge the gap and have individuals that maybe have never responded to an emergency before be able to respond to an emergency. And so that's really, really important. Um, when an organization's thinking about getting, getting their personnel trained, do you have people that are really committed, but do you have enough people um, to be able to respond in the event of emergency? Right, I guess, yeah, if you have a big company, you know, 
you can't just count on one person right. on the third floor right. um, yeah. to do it for everybody. I mean, I guess it's kind of like when you're on an airplane and you're in the uh, emergency row, and they kind of ask you, you know, if you're unwilling to help out in the case of emergency, you know, please, you know, let us know and we'll, you know, sit <laughs> you somewhere else. Right. You know, you need somebody who's not going to kind of shy away from a, an important moment. Right, and, and um, we run into this all the time with defibrillators, right? Mm -hmm. So we get asked all the time how many people are adequate in order to respond to an emergency, and we'll start asking questions, you know, has anybody walked the facility to time it? Because, you, again, timing really matters in terms of being able to save somebody's life. And so, um, you know, part of what we do is really consultative, and we try to help organizations be prepared uh, for different emergencies. I mean, I suppose it's not surprising, but is it surprising to you when you go out and, and see just, you know, how unprepared some folks are for emergencies like this? I mean, I imagine, you know, you mentioned walking, you know, walking the building, knowing kind of how long it would take you to, uh, to get to a certain spot. I mean, I imagine a lot of folks just don't know, haven't done these things. Yes, and that is accurate. Um, there's, um, a lot of different variables that sometimes organizations don't think think through. Parts of a building that don't have access. Um, you might have a lot of employees trained, but they may be all concentrated in one part of the building. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are things that you have to think about. Um, where are the locations of the defibrillators? Where are the locations of the first aid kits? Um, you know, these are things we, we do talk with organizations where not all the employees know where the defibrillators are, not all the employees know where the first aid kits are. And are the first aid kits stocked properly? And are they stocked properly, they right? You know, right. 10-year-old Band-Aids in them. Or, right, yeah. yeah, so I mean, all those things matter. Um, really, the attention to detail really matters when, you, when it comes to saving somebody's life. And I guess, you know, when you're working with folks and training them for, you know, CPR and things like that, but, uh, you know, how intensive is the training and how often should people be doing it to stay current? Well, we've recently, um, we've recently changed our training. Mm -hmm. We've overhauled our training and we feel like we've made a lot of improvements. We've shortened the training, um, which helps organizations um, be able to get even more people trained because uh, everybody is super busy, but we haven't compromised the training. If anything, we've enhanced the training because individuals have more concentrated skill time. They can concentrate on the hands-on skills practice um, where if they're facing an emergency, that um, repetition kicks in. Mm -hmm. And um, by doing that, by, by allowing organizations to have more concentrated training, we're focusing on the life-threatening emergencies more than ever, whether it's a stroke, whether it's cardiac arrest, whether it's life-threatening bleeding with our skills boost options. Um, organizations have the ability to concentrate more of their efforts on what is really gonna make difference in saving somebody's life. It's not that we don't want you to learn about snake bites and those types of things, but we've changed the format to make it um, a really a stronger return on invested time for our clients. If somebody wants to learn about some of the more unusual injuries, they can access our, our free participant manuals um, or they can access our free first aid app. So we've structured it so their time is really spent concentrated on life-threatening emergencies. 
and obviously depending on the industry there might be certain things that they're more interested like in other than others like construction obviously you've got yep. major equipment you, know, you might have some serious sure you know, yeah i mean for example when we're dealing with um heavy manufacturing which is you know good good portion of our our business those organizations are going to have more of an interest in life-threatening bleeding right because there might be a piece of machinery and they then they have you know a life-threatening emergency on their hands and in a period of five minutes somebody can bleed out so i mean something like that scenario is going to be more important or be of more interest to that kind of a client versus some some organization that maybe does light manufacturing or they're more of a of an office environment not that an office environment won't be of interest to that as well um, but for example we work with some organizations where um, you know they work with um, clientele that are you know that have, are prone to to, to overdoses mm -hmm. and so we have we came out with a new skills boost which is concentrated training on how to deliver naloxone um, in the event of an opioid overdose mm -hmm. so this is some of the things that we're doing to respond to the industries that we work with uh, but um, you know it's it's very much so um, what you talked about with your question we have an we have a concentrated training and it's varied enough so it meets the needs of that specific type of industry um, and we're, we're very comprehensive in that regard um, what are some other changes that you're seeing Sort of safety training and sort of how you're, how you're presenting it? Well, digital. The digital world has come to training pretty heavily, right? So we've adapted. Um, we, we've released the new blended learning content, which is partial online and then the skills portion in person, um, that allows an experienced trainee to um, test out of material they've already know, that they know and they've been taking year after year, right? So we call that adaptive learning. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the ways that we can meet the needs of, the org of, a, of an organization and meet the industry because these clients that have needs to train personnel, some of them many, many personnel, um, if somebody knows how to do the online portion or they know the cognitive piece of it, there's no reason they can't test out of it. Now, we're still going to reinforce it in a skill session with a certified instructor. Uh, but the digital world has very much uh, changed how training takes place. Right. We can have an adaptive learning structure, which we've implemented, where the same organization can have employees do the same training. And some employees, because they've had the training before and they know the knowledge piece of it, they can um, they can test out of a, let's say, 20, 30% of the training, the online portion, and then come take a concentrated skill session and feel strongly that they can respond to a life-threatening life emergency. Um, and I guess, obviously, with the pandemic, you know, you weren't able to go out and, you know, go into businesses and a lot of people were working from home, so this, this must have helped in, in terms of just keeping people uh, up to date on training, you know, remotely. Absolutely. So um, with um, our workplace training, we released a, um, a virtual option that was well embraced and that many of our clients are choosing to do ongoing, um, which allows organizations to view skill sessions 
to make sure that they can do the skills, the application portion of it, um, through a Zoom or a team call. And um, as long as the instructor follows our protocols, um, they follow the guidelines, and we have some strict guideline sheets because at the end of the day, it's about saving lives. Um, those individual organizations can issue a cert certification, provided the individual trainee has shown competency in the required skills. So COVID has kind of accelerated that for us and for other organizations that do training, uh, but it's just added an additional uh, flexible option for our clients to be able to meet their training needs. Have you seen increased participation uh, in training because of this option? Has it kind of made it more, more convenient for folks? Absolutely. So we have, Jay, we have a good portion of our client base that due to COVID, they're either flex time, they're coming back to the workplace um, sporadically, right. or some organizations, they have not returned to a building at all. Um, so in those situations, the remote option very much is important to them. Uh, because the requirements of training haven't gone away, if you have a defibrillator, you still need to maintain individuals who are certified who may be in the office maybe only 10% of the time. And so for these organizations that, um, that have to meet Good Samaritan law requirements or OSHA requirements, those, those requirements haven't gone away, but their employees are not in office. Right. They're, spread, they're spread out. So the virtual option's been really transformative because these organizations can train individuals in Peoria, Illinois, Dubuque, Iowa, Los Angeles, California, New York City in the same training. And they're getting the same quality training. The instructor is pinning them, each one, and making sure everybody is doing the skills properly. And then as an added advantage, everybody else that's in the training can view everybody else doing the skills, which is something that in a traditional training is very hard because in a traditional training, you're in a station with a mannequin. Right. Right. So this is some of the advances that have taken place um, really out of need from COVID. How does the, the virtual training work in terms of, like, do they, are they sent materials or something to work to actually practice on? Yes, or? so we send out a virtual kit which includes an inflatable mannequin that doesn't have to be returned. Um, depending on the age group, if they want to do pediatric, we'll send out two mannequins because pediatric, we're talking about newborn up to 12 years of age. And so they'll practice with this mannequin that'll be sent through the mail inflatable. Um, we have um, a simulated training um, defibrillator device simulated gauze bandage, and so they'll do all the skills that they would do in a traditional training, but they do get to do it from the convenience of wherever they're located, and it's really met a very big need for clients that are not comfortable yet having their employees come back into the office, or maybe employees themselves are not comfortable mm -hmm. being in an office or in a group setting. So um, it's made a huge difference, um, and uh, we've been able to reach more people that way. And some of our clients will never go back to a traditional training again because of the convenience aspect. Because you know, some of these organizations, they may permanently go to flex time. Right. They may never, or they'll have very limited office space. Or they may have a manufacturing crew that is working the manufacturing sites. And then they may have their non-manufacturing personnel off-site and this is a way to train their, let's say, the non-manufacturing personnel.
So it's met a big need for the marketplace. And as for the in-person training, has that started to go back up at all just because of you know more people coming back and it has because the requirements haven't gone away right. i mean you know you still have an osha requirement you still have an osha requirement and there's still fatalities in the workplace so right. that hasn't gone away you know if you're working a manufacturing line and there's a fatality um that reflects on the organization they're yeah. responsible you're right? not excused because you're of not, the pandemic. You're not excused. <laughs> yeah. You're absolutely not excused. So, and you know, the, really AEDs are, have become as popular almost as fire extinguishers. And with the AEDs come a responsibility. The corporation has a responsibility to um, have personnel that know how to use the defibrillator. And you only have, if, if it's cardiac arrest, you only have about 10 minutes. And so, um, in some instances, you don't have 10 minutes. And you need to know how to use the thing. You have to know how yeah. to use the thing. And, and we hear all the time, Jay, well, you know, well, our personnel knows how to use it. And we've, we've called 911 and we get a good response from 911. There's no guarantee the next time you call 911, that local EMT that handled your call the last time isn't on another call. Right. Or there might be construction or there might be traffic. And, or it might be the situation that I had with, personally with my family where it was unwitnessed cardiac arrest. Mm -hmm. Somebody collapses, you're on the clock whether somebody sees it or somebody doesn't see it. Right, right. And so these are things that clients have to think about um, you know, in order to be able to respond to a life-threatening emergency, whether it's life-threatening bleeding or it's cardiac arrest. So, I mean, these are things that um, the Red Cross is doing, uh, but it's also the, our clients who are subject to Good Samaritan law requirements or subject to OSHA, they have to be on top of these things. Has it become more of a concern for businesses now than it used to be in terms of just, you know, uh, complying with these, with these requirements? Is it, is it more, I feel like, um, you know, with a lot of safety topics, you know, because of the last couple of years, the safety has become more of a priority for companies, you know, than it was in the past. Have you seen that happening, uh, you know? Yeah, I think companies, yeah, Jay, I think companies are, are thinking more in terms of the overall, what's the cost of not doing it versus the cost of doing it, right? So you have a fatality, you have a person, um, you've now impacted a family, or you have somebody that's now on workers' compensation, they're out of, they're out of the job, the production doesn't stop. Right. So if it's preventable, it's, it comes down to dollars and cents and not just the life-saving aspect of it or, the, or being able to respond to an, a workplace emergency. So yes, I mean, we are seeing that organizations are thinking, at, thinking of it overall from an investment standpoint, the return on invested dollars. Um, you get back what you put into it, um, and the consequences of not doing it are very clear financially it's and otherwise. Right? It's liability. Yeah. It's liability. Nobody wants to be caught up in litigation. Certainly not um, any of our clients. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's been a re-education for some organizations that that have not had personnel in the office um, to reinforce that. You know. As you have individuals that come back into the office, those requirements haven't gone away. They right. still exist, right? Yeah, I imagine there's, there's just a lot of refreshing 
that has to be done for folks who maybe were trained pre-pandemic and just haven't, you know, been kept up with it over the last couple of years. And now they're back and they need to know, you know, what they you know, may have forgotten. Exactly. Yeah, exactly right. Um, you know, CPR, for example, is one of those things you never want to have to use. But when you have to use it, you really know how to have to know how to do it well. Right. And studies have shown that even months after you've been trained, you lose the skill. So if you're not having the skill reinforced, the effectiveness on how to do the, it may be that you know how to do the basics of the skill, but there's, there's detail involved, right? You, you want to like be- Techniques have advanced too. Techniques years, right? absolutely yeah. have advanced. We've, we, the Red Cross, have advanced as well as the science has advanced, right? Mm -hmm. So we have a scientific advisory committee that looks at best practices, that comes out with best practices. Our standards meet ILT core requirements, um, the International Liaison Committee on Resuscitation. So we meet very high standards. We have experts in the industry, and it's all designed to be able to save more lives. So little, little changes we've made over the years, um, the ratio of compressions to rescue breaths, right, right. starting with compressions as opposed to rescue breaths, with the exception of drowning instances. So, I mean, all those things um, factor into being able to save lives. And so when we overhauled the training, we also overhaul and refined our best practices on what is gonna, what are little things that we can do from a technique standpoint or an emphasis standpoint, like making sure you get a full recoil when you're doing a CPR skill um, to help save more lives. So all these things matter. Plus, we're responding to the needs of, of, of the country. Mm -hmm. Opioid overdose is an example. We came out with a skills boost for opioid overdose. We were asked um, to do this because the country's been in an opioid crisis. Right. We have over, last year I believe over 100,000 people lost their lives to an opioid overdose. Um, now, we've had in the past, we've had online content, but we've taken it to another level where you can become certified with a skills boost by learning how to administer naloxone. Mm -hmm. um, and so these are things that we're doing in response to what, what are the needs in the industry. And, you know, just in terms of updated technique, I mean, if you were, a, you know, just because you were a lifeguard in high school, uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago, you know, and haven't had any training since then, you know, it's certainly changed a lot. So you would have to get a refresher to really be, you know, on top of what you should be doing. Absolutely. I mean, if you're, uh, if, if you're in a situation where you have the responsibility of somebody else's life, um, there's no substitute for not just yourself knowing how to do the skills, which have evolved over time, but also as a group response. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we've really done is we've emphasized with the American Red Cross how to have a response if there's more than one person on the scene. We cover that in the basic life support course. Um, we cover that in the CPR professional rescuer course. And so all that matters, whether it's knowing um, 
whether it's the response time to call 911, whether it's somebody staying behind with the person and starting CPR and another person going retrieving the defibrillator. So it's a coordinated response. And um, one of the advantages we've come out with with the new training is what we call peer-to-peer -peer learning, where if somebody wants to um, work with a three-to-one ratio when doing a skill on a mannequin, you can have a coach, you can have an observer, and you can have a person doing the skill. And they learn from each other. And then, and then they switch off, then another person's good. Because you can do a skill well in the eyes of an instructor, but somebody, your peer, may pick up on something that you could do better. Right. And so this is the way we've evolved our training to improve it. Um, I wonder if you had any sort of real life examples of how the new training has, has worked out in you know, actual situations. Sure, yeah, I mean, we've had, you know, we, we, um, we award life-saving awards, uh, certificate of merit awards. So these are individuals who've had our training and use our training to save lives. Um, recently, we gave a life-saving award to um, two individuals that brought somebody back that had an opioid overdose. And if you don't know how to, you know, accurately diagnose the situation, mm -hmm. Am I dealing with an opioid overdose is part of that, right? So the evaluation process of what am I dealing with, um, what is the life-threatening emergency, and then knowing how to use it, knowing how to use the medication, knowing how to apply it, um, and um, naloxone was applied twice and brought the person back. And there's nothing more rewarding than that when you bring somebody back. And, and again, you know, we're offering a skills boost now that can help respond to these kinds of emergencies on opioid overdose. Cardiac arrest, another example. We had um, a manufacturer, an individual um, had, had just gotten off of a, a ladder and collapsed. And um, this was just a really ideal way that you want to implement the training. Because the individual collapsed, there were more than one person in the, on the scene. And a person took control yeah. and directed somebody to go call 911. First, they checked the scene to make sure it was safe to approach, determined it was life-threatening cardiac arrest. Person sends one person to go call 911. Another person goes, retrieves the defibrillator. Another person starts CPR. So coordinated effort. So you're not losing any time. Again, you only have about 10 minutes. Every minute that lapses, you lose about 10% survivability and it worked perfectly. And then, so when the defibrillator was applied, shock delivered, um, brought the person back, EMT arrives, person gets transported to the hospital, they're stabilized, they need a little, they need surgery, but they survive. Mm -hmm. And so these are examples of, of real life training and the intricacies of it you know, everybody has to do their part, ideally, everybody does their part, but by building up that muscle, muscle memory and knowing what to do. And when you think about it, the skill's only one part of it, right? You have to, you have to be able to know what the situation is, yeah. know what to do, not hesitate, and have a coordinated response. Yeah, having, and, having that person who can take charge of the situation is yeah. huge, I would imagine. Absolutely, the communication aspect of it. And it might just be as simple as having somebody go outside of a big office building so they can greet the, the EMT arriving 
to be able to show them where the where the mer where the emergency is. So, yeah, these are things that that are really um, there's no substitute for it. But it's so rewarding when you have those situations and you can give out a life-saving award because somebody took the training and they used the training to save somebody's life. So there's nothing more rewarding than that. Nice. Well, Dave, I want to thank you so much for joining us. It's been great. Jay, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much. That wraps up episode 117 of EHS on Tap. You can find more information about the show and listen to on-demand episodes at ehsdailyadvisor.blr.com. You can subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Google Play, iTunes, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me next time.